I promise we don't ever play songs like that as a way to just fill a couple minutes in a service. In fact, as we were planning this specific service and one of the members of the team brought that song, there was just this, this universal agreement among everyone as we knew the topic that was going to be discussed today that, that that was the way to tee up these words. And so before you hear anything else that comes out of my mouth today, perhaps that is actually what you need to hear more than anything else. You are loved. You are loved. No matter who you are, no matter what your past looks like, the decisions you've made, the labels that have been cast on you, you are loved. You you are so deeply loved by your creator, by your heavenly father. And and that deep love that he has for you, it, it changes everything. When God about 2,000 years ago gave his one, his only son on a cross as the final, as the once and for all solution to our sin problem, it changed everything. Through Jesus, we are given a second chance. We're given a new hope, a new identity. No longer do we have to be cursed by and identified by our sin. We can now find that identity in Jesus because of what he did for us. Whether you're watching right now and you would identify as a Jesus follower or not, I think we can all agree that, again, identity and where we find our identity, what we attach our identity to, that that is really, really important. For, for, for a lot of you who are sitting here today, a huge part of your identity is it's found in your career. It's pro- found in your professional success. Your identity might be attached to your belongings, maybe even your hobbies. For, for some of you, a good chunk of your identity, it's found in your children their successes, their achievements, ensuring you raise them in a healthy, respectful way. Some of you, you find your identity in politics or that particular political issue. Some of you, you find your identity in athletic achievements. Many of us, we find our identity in our relationships. This would include our our friendships, those people that we associate with, but it would also certainly extend into dating relationships, definitely our marriages. And whether you've really thought about this or not, both both the Christian and non-Christian alike, our identity is often found in, in our sexuality, which is expressed in a lot of different ways. Now, this is certainly reinforced by the society that we find ourselves in, but, but much of our identity is not only tied to our sexuality, but specifically our sexual orientation. Think about it. When you open someone's Facebook, when you open someone's Instagram profile, One of the most common pieces of information staring right back at you when you open that up are these pieces of information like LGBTQ and proud, married to the most beautiful woman, engaged to the man of my dreams, in love with dot, dot, dot. When you meet somebody new, usually one of the first two questions after you learn that person's name, come on, it's usually, what do you do for a living? And then, are you married? Are you dating anyone? Are you in a relationship? We all, and there are a lot of different reasons that we could cite and point to, but it's just a reality that we find ourselves in, We we place an enormous emphasis on sexuality and specifically someone's sexual orientation. I think we would all agree, whether you've really ever thought about this or not, that this is one of the primary contributors when determining someone's identity. But, but, I have some really, really, really good news for all of us this morning. You ready for this? You are more than your sexuality. I know, this is like revelational stuff. I'm sure you are really glad that you got out of bed this morning to hear these profound thoughts circling around in my head. But, but, but as basic, as, as elementary as this likely sounds to most of us who are sitting, who are watching today, 
We largely, Christian and non-Christian alike, we largely behave as, as if we're not fully convinced of this, as if we're not fully aware of this, not only as a society, but again, even in the Christian church. Uh, allow me to explain what I mean by this a little bit. First, to the church. I, I think if the average person who had never stepped foot in a church before or had never spent really any amount of time around Christians before suddenly got dropped into a Christian environment, one of the things that they would undeniably conclude after just spending a little bit of time around Christians is that heterosexual marriage is amongst the pinnacle of human achievement. I mean, women, you find the godly man of your dreams and you have arrived. Men, you find that God-fearing woman of your dreams and you have officially made it. Life could not possibly get any better. And while the intentions of this might be well-meaning, this is quite dangerous as it moves us away from Christ and towards our temporal, earthly relationships. Then we have society as a whole, which emphasizes, and not so subtly I might add, that nothing, nothing contributes more to your identity than your sexuality. Your sexuality isn't just a way to act. It's not just something to be demonstrated. I mean, it is a way to be. It is, as is often said, who you are. And whether it's the church passing this along or society as a whole, boy, have we all become suckers for taking the bait, for settling for something less than what God freely offers. We all, Christians and non-Christians alike, we, we have willingly attached our identities to such unworthy substitutes. When Jesus, God in the flesh, he offers us something so much better. He offers us himself. Remember we talked about this in the introduction to this series. If you weren't here actually for that first week, I'd really, really encourage you to go back and, and take a listen because what we talked about in that first week, it provides kind of this baseline for basically everything else that we're talking about throughout the course of this series. So if you weren't here during that first week, please go to grumlaw.com slash messages and catch yourself up there or you can find us under Grumlaw Church wherever you happen to grab your podcast. But in that first week, we talked about the fact that this is what separates Christianity from every other faith tradition. Only Christianity teaches that God offered himself as the once, as the final solution to our collective sin problem. Jesus gave himself on a cross. He took the weight of our sin on his shoulders so that we have that opportunity to recapture our relationship with our creator. To, to once again find our identity in him, to live for him rather than all of those other substitutes that always promise one thing but consistently under deliver. And as we talked about in that first week, the order of how God went about this is so important. Jesus has proven himself trustworthy and now he asks you to trust him in return. This is not some blind trust. He, he proved himself trustworthy when he died for you. He showed how much he loved you when he gave himself for your sin problem. And now he's just asking, hey, will you trust me in return? Not to mention, hasn't your life kind of shown you that all that other stuff that you identify yourself by, that you place your trust in consistently and constantly falls short? And so God's going, I don't know, how about, how about you give my way a chance? You, you were created to be in relationship with the living God. You were created to be in relationship with your creator. You were created to find your identity in Jesus, not in all this other stuff that our world and specifically the evil one tries to distract us with. The stuff that always falls short, 
the stuff that never leaves us satisfied long-term. Now, before we get into the meat of this message, I think this is just an appropriate time to kind of hit time out, pause, and just pray for all of us, so allow me to do that now. God, we thank you that you are a God who is so incredibly for us, not against us, that you have our best interest in mind. And I do just pray, God, that today every single one of us would just put on humility and be open and we would just say, God, whatever it is that you want to say to me today, I am willing to receive that because I trust that you have my best interests. I trust that you have me in mind. In your name we pray, amen. Now, as we continue in this conversation regarding our identity, as mentioned, something that so often takes pole position in our lives and where we're headed today, again, is this topic of sexuality. And fortunately for us, at least I think it's fortunate for us, God, our creator, and maybe you've never thought about it this way, but the creator of sex, so I don't know, maybe we ought to listen to his advice on the subject, he has an awful lot to say about our sexuality. And seriously, I think we ought to be so thankful for this because it is the creator's way of protecting the creation. God knows that our sexuality, when used improperly, when thrown around however we see fit, it can cause some serious damage. It can cause so much damage that the advice given to us within scripture, which is God's word, is this. Run from sexual sin. Get away from it. Other translations read flee. Run away from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. See, all sin damages our relationship with God. All sin damages our relationship with others, but no other sin has such a disastrous effect on our memories, our emotions, and our relationships as does sexual sin. So the writer's advice for us right here, run, get away, flee. And guess what? Every single one of you watching right now, Christian or not, you didn't need a Bible to tell you this. Most of us have experienced the consequences and damage firsthand that sexual sin causes. You have seen what kind of damage treating your sexuality loosely can cause. That there's virtually no debate on this particular point, right? Even if you're completely anti-Jesus, atheist, this is really, really hard to dispute. But, but here is the question <laughs> that is so often posed to me. I mean, seriously, there's hardly a week that goes by without somebody reaching out on this particular subject. And it's perhaps the question circling around in your head right now. Shay, what exactly do you mean by sexual sin? Can you be, I don't know, like a little more specific? And actually, can we talk about that one subject in particular that everyone else seems to be talking about, but for whatever reason, the church seems to be strangely silent on? Fortunately for us, just a couple of verses earlier, before Paul, the writer here, tells us to literally run, get away, flee from sexual sin, he also offers us these words. He says, don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Don't kid yourselves. Do not be so naive. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or commit adultery or are male prostitutes, or practice homosexuality, or are thieves, or are greedy people, or drunkards, or abusive, or cheat people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. All will be cut off from God in eternity. All will experience separation from God. So sexual sin gets mentioned here, idol worship, adultery, prostitution, thievery, greed, drunkards, cheaters, abusers. I miss anything? Oh yeah maybe just an ever so slightly hot button topic in our world today, homosexuality. 
This is that, hey, I'm just kind of asking for a friend question that is posed to me perhaps more than every other question combined. Shay, what is your take on homosexuality? Shay, what is the church's stance on homosexuality? But, but the question that ought to be most important for the sake of our conversation here today, as we continue to wrestle with, you remember this from week one, God's way or my way? The, the, the question we should probably ask as we look to the creator of sexuality, the creator of sex, the only question that we should be asking if you're sitting here today and you identify as a Jesus follower is what does God say? And again, as we mentioned in week one in the introduction to this series, if you call yourself a Jesus follower, what you think, what you feel, what you believe, it's really not all that important. All that matters is what God says, what he teaches. I believe it because he says it. And if you're sitting here today and that feels like a hard pill to swallow, remember central to the message of following Jesus is giving up your own way, taking up your cross, and following him. And again, appealing to kind of more of that logical side of our brains, if, if God created sex, which he did, maybe we ought to take the words of the creator seriously since, you know, he created it. And as we talk about this today, I'm going to approach this by unpacking some myths that we're so often led to believe relating to our sexuality and specifically the LGBTQ question, homosexuality, same-sex attraction. Myth number one, sex is just sex. We, we actually already touched on this here for a second. We touched on this a bunch last week, and I'm not going to spend too much time here because I frankly don't think this ought to take a lot of debunking. Again, Paul in his early letter to the Christian church in Corinth, he says this. He says, run, flee, get away from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Don't you realize, and he says this because he recognizes that some people weren't realizing this, which probably stands to reason that some of you who are watching and listening right now, you haven't put this together. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, that God dwells in you, who lives in you and was given to you by God. You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body and everything you do, it ought to be honoring to God. But most other sin that we read about within scripture, within the pages of the Bible, it, it tells us to do things like stand against it, resist, fight. But sexual sin is unique in how the writers speak of it. Again, flee, run, get away. And they tell us this because not only does sexual sin have a disastrous effect on our own bodies, on our own personality, but our soul. The, the, the memories and the damage are next to impossible to get rid of. Our, our world tries to tell us that sex is just sex and it's no big deal. But literally, think about it. Every life experience tells you the complete opposite. And then Paul, the writer here, he goes on to appeal to something just a little bit deeper. He's explaining that you are not your own. No, you, as in you listening, watching right now, you were purchased at a price. An exceedingly high price, actually. God places such value on you that he purchased you from the power of sin with the blood of his son. 
You as a follower of Jesus have been purchased from sin. As a follower of Jesus, you are no longer a slave to sin. You do not have to do what your desires tell you to do. You are the master of your body because your body is now under the authority of God. So before you're about to make a decision as it relates to your sexuality, you just need to ask yourself the question, is this going to honor God? Is what I'm about to do with my body going to honor my creator who purchased me with the exceedingly high price of his son? So myth number one, sex is just sex. Myth number two, when it comes to sexual sin, homosexuality stands alone at the top. Or it's in some separate category at some higher level, like it's somehow the pinnacle of sexual sin. And before I go any further in this message, for those of you who are sitting here right now, who are watching right now, who wrestle with same-sex attraction, or or those of you who are watching who care deeply about someone who struggles with same-sex attraction, and and you've been hurt by the approach of a church or or a Christian in the past, I, I want you to hear this so clearly from me. And please hear me too that that I am not expecting that this is somehow going to make the pain go away or it's going to heal those hurts, but I think this has to be said. I am so sorry. As a whole, the way the Big C Church has treated the LGBTQ community has been nothing short of disgusting, hypocritical, saddening, disheartening. And I am telling you that it does not reflect the posture of Jesus. And I'm embarrassed, and I I confess, and I ask for your forgiveness that for much of my life, I had such a hardened heart and a judgmental spirit towards those who wrestle with same-sex attraction. I for too long was a part of the problem. And with absolute sincerity, I ask for your forgiveness. I am sorry. And if I can be so vulnerable, what changed my posture towards those who wrestle with same-sex attraction, it wasn't some theology course. It wasn't even a passage of scripture. It wasn't a book. It wasn't a podcast. It was relationship. I actually entered into real relationships, friendships with those in the LGBTQ community and God broke me. He reminded me that he loves every single person who wrestles with same-sex attraction just as much as he loves those with heterosexual desires. He died just as much for the individual who wrestles with same-sex attraction as he did for me. See, and I'm talking to the Christians in particular, it was easy to have a hot take on the topic of homosexuality when it was just a subject, when it was just a topic. But my goodness, did it change once I didn't just see a title, once I didn't just see a label, but a face. Even as I give this talk right now, there are literally faces, smiles, people that are flashing through my mind that I care so deeply about. People who are a part of this church community, people who love this community deeply, people who love Jesus deeply. And so if you're listening right now, especially you Jesus followers, and you have any sort of anger or hostility or judgment or hatred or bitterness or antipathy 
towards those who wrestle with same-sex attraction, I I would challenge you to examine your life to see if you have any sort of a relationship with someone who wrestles with this, and my guess is that the answer is probably no. And if the answer is no, especially if you call yourself a Jesus follower, I would caution you to be very, very, very slow to speak. Because my life experience has shown me you're likely to represent Jesus poorly. Because it's in relationship that you gain empathy and compassion. And and rather than approaching topics like these with judgment and hostility, you see people. People that Jesus saw fit to die for. So to be clear, and scripture speaks directly to this, sexual sin undeniably has more negative consequences than most other sin. It's again why we are given this advice to run, to get away, to flee. But amongst sexual sin, homosexuality is not in some other category. And I share that because I meet plenty of Christians who are quick to condemn homosexuality, but they're dismissive of a pornography addiction. They're quick to extend forgiveness to someone who has committed adultery, literally committed adultery, but they're hardened to a homosexual couple. Or or how about this one? The individual who is nothing but judgmental and passive-aggressive to the gay couple that just moved in, but they're completely dismissive of their own son who is living with his fiance before marriage. All of this encompasses sexual sin. All is wrong in the eyes of God. All of this damages ourselves and our relationship with our creator and ultimately our relationship with others. But do not start stepping into the shoes of God, entering into the mind of God and falling for the lie that same-sex attraction is somehow different than other sexual sin. It's not. And there's no biblical support to indicate as much. We as followers of Jesus, we begin to wander down a very dangerous path when we start to make assumptions on God's behalf and insert our thoughts, our convictions, our words as his. Myth number three, same-sex attraction is a choice. Can we even imagine how insulting, how hurtful this must be when this is suggested, whether it's just implied or directly stated? But particularly towards those who are actively attempting to resist this temptation. For example, for years, my, my older brother, he struggled with alcoholism. And there was a good chunk of time there at the end where he was just trying to gain victory, but inevitably he would end up backsliding. I, I think we would all agree that it would be very, very hurtful to look at my brother in those scenarios or anyone else who's in addiction recovery and say, well, just stop doing that. I mean, don't you love Jesus? Well, why would you keep doing something like that? Don't you think God is more powerful than your addiction? Don't you think God is more powerful than your temptation? Don't you think God is more powerful than booze? We would all agree that that would be so hurtful, but so often we subtly insinuate this or we assume that that individual who struggles with same-sex attraction, that if they just prayed harder, the temptation would go away. Church, I've struggled with anger, a lack of patience for basically my entire life. And I assure you, there has been no shortage of prayer, no shortage of effort to try to get this out of my life. For whatever reason, probably something to do with my sinful nature, this is still the most glaring sin in my life. I have not been cured of this. And it seems entirely possible that I will wrestle with this for the rest of my life. And ironically, coming to grips with that, it used to frustrate, it used to anger me, and it still does at times. But as I grow closer and closer and closer to Jesus, 
It's yet another reminder of how much I need the grace that Jesus freely offers and moves me to a day-by-day, moment-by-moment dependence on the Holy Spirit. If you're categorized by disgust over someone else's sin rather than being overwhelmed by the forgiveness that has been extended to you, you are desperately out of touch with Jesus. Let me say that again. If you are categorized by disgust over someone else's sin rather than being overwhelmed by the forgiveness that has been extended to you, you are desperately out of touch with Jesus, with the gospel. The seed of every sin is in every human heart. So just because you don't personally wrestle with same-sex attraction does not mean that it is made up or something that just kind of could be plucked away like a weed from a garden. Same-sex attraction is not a choice. For whatever reason, this is a desire, this is a lure that exists inside of some people and not others. Some people are angrier than others, while others display an almost holy level of patience. Some people are extremely tempted to overeat while others see eating as a chore. Some people have an almost insatiable sexual appetite that leads to a much higher propensity to look at pornography than others. Whatever that vice might be, whatever that temptation may be for you, whatever sin seems to regularly trip you up, I cannot answer why you seem to be hardwired that way while others don't seem to wrestle with that at all. That's a question that we're probably not going to get answered this side of eternity. But remember, the seed of every sin is in every human heart. And although I might not struggle with same-sex attraction, I assure you that I, like everyone else watching right now, we are all tempted in other ways. Myth number four, you're alone. You're alone in this. Paul, in his early letter to the Christian church in Rome, he offers us these words. He says, for everyone has sinned, as in all of us. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Every single one of us. As a church, as Grumlaw Church, we will never stigmatize one sin over another. We will not elevate one temptation over another. We are all sinners, all in desperate need of the grace of God that was provided to each of us through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Repentance, don't miss this, repentance looks the same way for every single person in this room, every person watching. We all come to the cross the exact same way. We are all called to recognize the sin and deceitfulness that exists inside every single one of our hearts and humbly come to Jesus seeking his mercy, seeking his forgiveness. So yes, we find common ground in our sin, but more than that, we have the opportunity to find victory and unity and common ground at the cross, not because of anything that we have done, not because of our works, but because of what Christ did for us. You are not alone. Not in your sin, but more than that, you, by virtue of the fact that you are sitting here today, you find yourself among a bunch of people who have found common ground at the feet of Jesus. Who who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. We are a gathering of human beings with different sins and different temptations, but the exact same Savior. A Savior that not only died for us, but even now to this present moment is interceding for us. The same power that rose Jesus from the grave is available to you to fight those seemingly impossible battles. 
We are not called to fight these battles alone, to fight these temptations alone. We have the fellow believer and more importantly, God himself going before us. As a church, one of the things you'll hear us say all the time is you can belong before you believe. You can belong here long before you believe. So so to those of you who are sitting here today and you're wrestling with same-sex attraction, or you have a friend or a family member who wrestles with same-sex attraction, you are welcome and you will be loved at this church. I, I think you'll find that you're gonna be treated no differently than anyone else because we are a collective group of people who recognize every single one of us are broken and imperfect and we're all in desperate need of Jesus. In fact, one of the things you can't help but notice as you read about the life of Jesus is that he made a habit of spending an awful lot of time with people whom religious people had cast to the side. He spent so much time with notorious sinners. Shouldn't his church look the same? Shouldn't Grumlaw be a place where, where less than perfect people are constantly walking through the doors? Shouldn't we actually celebrate when someone who's living the complete opposite of what Jesus would desire and advocate comes sitting in these seats on a Sunday morning? Even more, shouldn't we be a people that if you call yourself a Jesus follower, that go marching out into our world to love on those who don't yet know Jesus and show them what Jesus looks like? Shouldn't, and for some of you, this is going to rub you the wrong way, shouldn't Grumlaw actually be known as friends to the LGBTQ community? We must love our gay neighbor more than our position on sexual morality. So even if somebody disagrees with us, we must not push them away. Jesus, the gospel, requires this of us. In the book of John, there's a, there's a story recorded for us. John is one of those four books that records the life of Jesus for us and some of those interactions. And there's this one situation that Jesus finds himself in where a woman has literally been caught in the act of adultery. And according to the law, according to the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament, a, a woman caught in the act of adultery was to be killed. She was to be stoned to death. And so it's all these religious people hovered around this woman who has been caught in the act of adultery. I mean, she is guilty as charged. And then Jesus. And these religious leaders, they look at Jesus and they say, hey, Jesus, the law says that a woman caught in the act of adultery should be stoned to death, that she should be killed. So what do you say? And Jesus nods his head and he goes, well, that's what the law says. Then fair enough. Let's, let's kill her. But, quick caveat, how about he who is without sin in this group of people amongst these religious people, how about he is who is without sin? How about that person throws the first rock at her? So without further ado, let's get at it. And one by one, this crowd dissipates. All these religious men leave until it is literally just Jesus and this woman. And Jesus kneels down next to this woman and he goes, did nobody, I mean, not one person threw a rock, no one condemns you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. Mercy over judgment 100% of the time. 
If you call yourself a Jesus follower, this right here should characterize our interactions with those who do not yet know Jesus, the balance of grace and truth. If you're sitting here today and you wrestle with same-sex attraction, this right here is Jesus' heart towards you. Mercy, not judgment. And for everyone listening right now, don't miss this. Do not miss this. Sexual immorality, sexual sin does not send you or anyone to hell. No, refusing to allow Jesus to be the Lord and center of your life, regardless of how that manifests itself, that is what dooms us. So for you, it might manifest itself in your refusal to let Jesus be Lord over your sexual life, or in your refusal to obey him with your money, or your right to control your career. It's not where you express your rebellion that matters, but that it exists. The real issue is who gets to call the shots and subsequently where we find our identity. Society has elevated our sexuality to be the defining element of who we are, to literally be our identity. As Jesus followers, why would we follow society's lead? You are more than your sexuality. It is extremely unwise, even untruthful, and it denies the very power of Jesus when we identify our lives by our sins, by our temptations, rather than be defined by Christ, who has overcome sin, who has overcome death when he rose from the grave. Every single one of us, Christian, non-Christian alike, we are well acquainted with our sexual temptations, but we are not what our temptations say of us. We are what Christ has done for us. Therefore, as Jesus followers, our identity is simple. We are Jesus followers. We we must place our ultimate identity not in who we are, regardless of if you have heterosexual attractions or same-sex attractions, but in who we know God to be and what he says about us. As image bearers to our creator, our identity is found in him not our sexual impulses. If sexuality is your primary identity, then sexuality ought to be your primary call. But everyone, you need to hear this. We are not ultimately made for sex. We are made for God and his glory alone. God isn't simply calling you away from something, and that's for all of us. No, he's calling you to himself. Everything and everyone else that we try to find our identity in, it's always going to fall short. It it is only in Christ that we find true joy, true purpose. And it's only with him that we can experience victory over the sin and the temptation that plagues every single one of us. I'll leave us with this truth from God's word. He personally carried our sins in his body, Jesus, on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. Live for God. By his wounds, you are healed.